And uh, let's do this. Father, you're so good, you're so kind. Thank you that you're stronger than everything that's going on in the world. You're stronger than our emotions. You're stronger than our circumstance. And you're stronger than everything we face.
We're going to keep singing this morning, but I just wanted to share with you how gorgeous the sunrise was this morning. And I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Genesis, but in Genesis, it specifically points out four kinds of trees. Two of them we know we're pretty familiar with, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. But there were two others that is mentioned in the book of Genesis. And one is that God created every tree that was beautiful to look at then trees that were good to eat. Why do you think it is that God created beautiful trees for us to look at? It's because he knows we need beauty. So this morning, while we know there's a lot going on in the world, and there's a lot going on inside of us, I just want to give you permission this morning to get lost in the beauty of the Lord. Is that okay?
Jesus, we, uh, we want to sing to you about truth, which is about your beauty, about your glory, about the wonder that is you. And we thank you for who you are. And uh, thank you that you have given us the ability to sing to you, to talk about you, that we can proclaim about you. Thank you. Kids, you are free to go.
Okay, good morning, everyone. You can find a seat. Great to see all of you here this morning. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that is our prayer this morning, that because of Christ, because of Christ and our relationship with him, he makes us pure. He gives us his righteousness so that, such that we're able to see the beauty of God. We're able to see him. And, uh, and blessed, happy, satisfied are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's our prayer this morning that you'll see God. You'll experience, taste his love and his grace this morning, both in our connection to him and in our connection to one another as well. Well, I'm Chris, and I want to welcome all of you here this morning, and welcome to those of you that are watching online on a pretty cold morning this morning, and it's great to have all of us here together. And if you are visiting today, I want to again remind you that we'd love for you to fill out the Connect card in the little pocket in front. If you stop by our Welcome Center, you can drop that card there in the Welcome Center or in any of the offering baskets. Um, again, we'd love to have you get more involved and more connected to Linworth. Um, so if you have any questions or comments, you can let us know on that card or any of the events that we're going to mention. You can write on that card if you plan on attending one of these events to help us plan ahead for that. So, okay, I'm gonna mention three things here and then Nick will be up to take us uh, into our next uh, edition of the book of First Kings. Again, speaking of guests, we've had so many people come uh, new to our church in the last year, year and a half, and things have been so up and down because of COVID, hopefully settling down here somewhat. And um, if you would like to learn more about the church in a short introductory setting about an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and a half we're having a get connected luncheon it'll be next sunday you'll have a chance to meet some of our staff and pastors to hear an introductory vision as to where we're going a little bit of our history and have some opportunity as well to ask questions now Families, children and families are welcome to this event. Again, the kids can be a part of our time. And uh, so we would, we would welcome that. It's, again, fairly informal. It's over lunch. So if you've got a family with young children, please feel free to bring them to that time. We do need, again, because there's food involved, we do need you to register in advance, either by the uh, online or in the vision clips or in your Bible app. You'll see a link to that. Um, or again, you can just write, get connected on that connect card and we'll make sure that you are uh, signed up for that event. Secondly, I um, want to encourage you to attend our evangelism class. This is one of our core classes. It's a class that we hope that every one of you will take. And Pastor Mike teaches this class and Mike does such an exceptional job with this. If you uh, would like to learn or just simply need refreshed in how to communicate your faith. I want to encourage you to sign up for that class. And again, you can see the information there on how to register for that class. And then finally, um, Orphan World Relief, uh, a very valued partner ministry with us. They have their superhero 5K run walk coming up on April the 24th at Hilliard Davidson. It's a very family friendly, 
very exciting event, one that we're really excited to endorse and to partner with Doug in. And again, you can get all the details about how to sign up. Again, it's in our vision clips, it's in our e-letter, our vision clips, it's in the, in the Bible app, and you can get registered for that event as well. So, praise the Lord. Nick, you wanna come on up? All right, well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I think last week we were trying to figure out how to turn the AC back on in here, and this morning we're back to winter coats, so I guess that's what you get in spring in Ohio. Well, it is good to see you here this morning. As Chris said, we are gonna continue on in this series through the book of 1 Kings, and today we'll mark about the halfway point in the series. Now, I don't know about you or what you think about this, but, uh, you know, personally, I think we're in kind of a weird moment uh, as it relates to television shows and movies. And what I mean by that is that basically at this point, what it seems like anyway, is that everything that's been coming out lately seems to be some sort of reboot or remake of something that we've already seen before. I mean, whether we're talking about movies like Dune or West Side Story or Spider-Man for the seventh time or whatever it is, or, you know, again, let's go to television shows. There's the same thing. You have the Wonder Years uh, remake. You have Saved by the Bell. And now uh, there's even a new one called Bel Air, which is a remake of the show Fresh Prince from the 90s. And of course, I'm not the only one who has noticed this trend. I'm sure you have as well. In fact, I read an article this week which was talking about this very thing. And the article went on to say this, if the last time you turned on your TV, you were convinced you'd somehow fallen into a kind of relentless time loop, you're probably not the only one. In fact, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the entertainment world has simply traveled back through time, defying all metaphysical norms and stayed there. At least that seems to be the only way to explain why everything is a reboot, a remake, or a sequel of something that came before it. You'll likely remember the first time a show or a film you loved got remade and probably you were overjoyed to welcome it back into your eyeballs. But over the years, these rare returning favorites seem to have turned into unwelcome house guests showing up unannounced and refusing to leave. Right? Like this, this, is, <laughs> this feels like where we're at. Now, maybe that doesn't bother you. Maybe you enjoy the sense of familiarity. Uh, you like the nostalgia. Um, but for me personally, except for a few exceptions out there, I find it to be pretty tiresome. It just feels like art and originality and good storytelling, good storytelling is somewhat dead right now. Now, with that said, though, whether you love it or whether you're annoyed by it, when it comes to the Bible, we do find that there are these often repeated themes or storylines or remakes, if you will, that run throughout the biblical narrative. And one of the more common themes that we see repeated over and over again is uh, the theme of Exodus. And in today's passage, we're going to see a kind of upside down or inverted Exodus story. And so because of that, you'll want to keep that, that story uh, from uh, the book of Exodus in mind as we work our way through this passage. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Kings chapter 12. Um, it's on page 293 in our Pew Bible if you need to borrow one. And uh, again, we're going to be covering a lot of ground this morning, so I would encourage you to, to look at a Bible so that you can follow along. But before we jump in here, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we do welcome your spirit into this time. God, we need you. We need you to be able to see truth and to know it and believe it. 
And so, Father, we ask that you'd come, you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know and hearts to obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, we're going to be covering a lot of ground this morning. We're going to try to go through chapters 12 through 14. And so basically, my outline is just a, a title for each one of those chapters to help keep us on track here. So first, we'll look at a tale of two kings in chapter 12. Then we'll look at a tale of two prophets in chapter 13. And then finally, we'll look at a tale of a blind prophet who can see in chapter 14. And then we'll finish up by asking what lessons or what application can we draw from these chapters here. Now, as you can tell from my outline, we're going to be talking a lot about kings and a lot about prophets today. And I know that in that first week, we talked about Nathan the prophet. But really, up until this point in Israel's history, the prophets haven't really taken much of a central role apart from maybe Samuel. But that's all about to change. Not only that, though, but we're also about to get introduced to a whole bunch of different kings here through the rest of the book. And unlike David and Solomon, often we're only going to get just a little bit of their history and then a summarizing statement or a summarizing evaluation about their reign from the narrator of the book. And so because of that, let me just share with you something that I picked up from the Bible Project, guys, which lays out both the role of the prophet and also the criteria for how the kings will be judged and compared in the book. And so in terms of the role of the prophet, here's what we see is that they do primarily these four things. Number one, the prophet speaks on God's behalf. In other words, they function as, as God's mouthpiece to the nation, uh, to the people of God. Number two, we see that they function as covenant watchdogs. I really like that, that imagery and that term. In other words, what they do is they, they keep an eye out to see if the people of God are staying true to the terms of the covenant, primarily the Mosaic covenant. Number three, we see, and this relates to the previous one, we also see that as part of their role, they are to call out idolatry and injustice when they see it. And then fourthly, they are to challenge the people of God to repent and to follow the Torah. So in other words, not only are they looking to call out violations, almost like a referee, but they're also there to encourage and to challenge the people of God to repent and to turn back to God and to obey and follow his law. And so that's the role or the function of the prophet. Now, in terms of the different kings and how each one is evaluated and measured in the book, what we see is that uh, there are three primary questions that will be asked of each one of them. Number one, well, the question will be asked, did they worship God alone, the God of Israel alone? Number two, we'll ask, did they rid the land of idolatry? Did they tear down those, those Asherah poles? Did they destroy the high places? And then thirdly, we'll ask, did they themselves remain faithful to the covenant? In other words, if they're a king, did they do those Deuteronomy, I think it's 17 or 18, did they, did they obey those commands that were given for the king and, and the rest of the Mosaic covenant? Now, as we're about to see in a moment, the kingdom of Israel is going to divide and split. And because of that, there's going to be double the amount of kings that are talked about and evaluated in the book. And unfortunately, in terms of passing this test, or meeting these criteria, what we find out is that in the northern kingdom, which will be called Israel throughout the rest of the book, their kings go basically zero for 20 in terms of good kings who pass the test. 
Now, Judah in the south, for their part, they'll do a little better, but still pretty bad, because according to most standards, they'll, they'll have eight good kings or okay kings and 12 that are bad and who don't live up to these standards. So in other words, what this means for us is that for the rest of the book, we're in for a little bit of a rough ride here. And so with that as a kind of understanding and framework of where we're going, let's jump into this first scene here, a tale of two kings. Now, in using the word tale, I don't mean to imply that these are made up or fictitious. No, we believe this is real history that took place. So chapter 12, verse 1, we read this. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and, then, and we will serve you. And he said to them, Go away for three days, and then come again to me. So the people went away. Okay, so as we saw last week, Solomon's reign ended pretty poorly. He fell into idolatry. He got super obsessed with collecting wealth and building cities and buildings and structures. And yet, because of his father David's faithfulness, God allowed him to live out his days in relative peace. Now, we do see at the end of chapter 11 that God does raise up some adversaries to oppose him. And we're going to talk about one of those guys here in just a second. But, but for now, what we see is that in the story, Solomon is dead. His son Rehoboam is set to be the new king. Um, and amazingly, unlike Solomon, there doesn't seem to be any brothers or siblings who are trying to fight him for the place of the throne. Which again, I say is amazing given the fact that Solomon had over 700 wives. And so you would think that there would be quite a lot of competition for the kingship. But for whatever reason, there's not, at least in terms of his own family. And so Rehoboam, we're told here, goes to Shechem to be anointed as king. Now that too is also an interesting detail because you would assume that he would be anointed in the capital city in Jerusalem. But instead he heads north. And so perhaps there were already some rumblings of trouble between Judah and the rest of the 10 tribes. Now, again, we're introduced here to a man with a very similar name to Rehoboam, and that is Jeroboam. And what we're told here in chapter 11 is that at one time, Jeroboam was in charge of the forced labor under King Solomon. But then one day this prophet named Ahijah approaches him and tells Jeroboam that one day he will become king and God will give him 10 of the tribes of Israel because of Solomon's disobedience and idolatry. And not only that, but God even promises Jeroboam that if he obeys and follows him, he will cause his family to have a dynasty like that of David and his family. And so this is the prophecy that is given to Jeroboam back in chapter 11. Now, somehow uh, this news and this prophecy got back to Solomon and obviously he was not too happy about it. And, and we're told that he tries to kill Jeroboam, which is why Jeroboam fled to Egypt in order to find safety. But again, as we just read, now that Solomon is dead, Jeroboam is back in Israel and he, along with the rest of the people, they are complaining to Rehoboam 
that his dad Solomon was too harsh on them and they are asking that Rehoboam lightens their load. And Rehoboam replies, he says, I'll think about it, come back in three days and I'll give you my answer. Verse six, then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was still yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and who stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus you shall speak to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now where, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Okay, so first, Rehoboam seeks out the counsel of the older, wiser men who had served under his father. And what they tell him is that he is to, uh, they advise him to listen to the request of the people. And that if he does that, if he lightens their load, the people will love him and will serve him forever. Now, apparently that wasn't quite the answer he was looking for, or maybe he just thought he should get a second opinion about it. And so instead he goes to his own buddies, his own peers who had grown up with him, and he asked them for their opinion. And what we see or what we just saw is that they give him the exact opposite counsel. In fact, they tell him to not only not lighten the load, but to increase the workload and to treat the people even worse. Um, they even throw in this really crude statement about my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Now, I don't really want to get into it, but most commentators think that the word thighs or waist is not the right translation there. Um, actually, most of them think uh, it, it's something much more crude and vulgar, and I'll let you figure that one on your own, or you can talk to Cory Bacher after the service. But um, not only that, they also add in this language about whipping them with scorpions instead of, you know, just, I guess, plain whips like what Solomon used. Now, apparently, a scorpion was a type of whip that was extra intense and awful. It had little bits of metal on the end of it. And so this is not talking about the arachnid with a spiky tail. No, this is something very brutal. And so again, his friends give him some terrible advice. He then, as we see in the next couple of verses, tells Jeroboam and his people his decision to, uh, to not listen to them. And so in response to this, the people are like, forget you, man. Like, we're not going to stay under your reign. Like, we're done. We're all going back home. Now, if we look at verse 15, we see this really interesting side note and commentary from the narrator of the book who says this. So the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, this is just one of those statements that we find in the Bible that, that happens quite often where we see God's sovereignty played out, but it's done so through the hands and the decisions of human agents. 
And so what we see here is that God is at work behind the scenes to accomplish both his word and his will. Now, the next thing that happens is that Rehoboam tries to force them into submission. And so he sends this, this guy by the name of Adoram, who was in charge of the forced labor. And so he shows up and he's trying to force the people to work and to, to do what, what Rehoboam wants them to do. But as soon as he shows up, the people just stone him to death. And then Rehoboam, who apparently maybe was in the area, finds out about this and he flees back to Jerusalem for safety. And then in verse 20, we're told that the people take Jeroboam and they make him king and that all Israel followed him except for the tribe of Judah, which remained loyal to, Jer uh, to Rehoboam, the house and the house of David. Now, after this, Rehoboam musters up an army from among the tribe of Judah to, to try to squelch this rebellion and to restore the kingdom back to himself. But then we're told in verse 22 this. But the word of God came to Shema, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. Every man return to his home for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. Okay, so except for this last little bit where we see Rehoboam listen to the word of the Lord, for the most part, what we have seen so far is that he is a very foolish and terrible king. And that because of this, the kingdom is now divided and split into two. And reflecting on this reality, commentator Paul House wrote this. One incredibly poor decision tears down in a few days what David and Solomon labored 80 years to build. Possibly this passage's most important lesson is how much easier it is to break up what belongs together than it is to restore what is broken. And how true that is, right? Whether we think about our own lives, whether we're talking about nations or families or our own reputations, sometimes all it takes is one bad decision to burn it all down. And the rebuilding or the restoring process is often pretty difficult and sometimes it's even impossible. And so even though this was from the Lord, we still see here that Rehoboam was a bad king. In fact, if, if we keep that Exodus story in our minds, what we see here is that Israel has become the new Egypt and that Rehoboam has become like Pharaoh, enslaving and oppressing the people. And this guy named Jeroboam who comes along, he, who comes from Egypt, he is like a Moses figure who comes to help set the people of God free. And so again, like I said, this is kind of like a weird upside down Exodus story. And so how does Jeroboam, this new king, this new Moses-like figure, how does he do? In other words, does he keep Yahweh's commands and will he get that dynasty that God promised him if he was faithful? Well, let's find out. Verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. 
So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to go to be before one. He also made temples on the high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month and the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Okay, so wow, that sure did not take long before the wheels came off of this, right? So God causes Jeroboam to become king, to be in charge of the 10 northern tribes. And he promises to bless him if he is faithful to Yahweh's commands and statutes. And the very first thing we see Jeroboam do is to immediately break uh, God's commands. You see, instead of trusting God and believing that he was big enough to help them figure out how to worship in the proper way, even with the, uh, them being cut off to Jerusalem and the temple, and instead he, he lets fear uh, drive him to make a bad decision. You see, Jeroboam, he starts to think to himself, you know, if this people that I'm leading, if they start to travel down to Jerusalem each year, then eventually they're gonna turn their hearts back to King Rehoboam and they're gonna to try to kill me. And so what does he do? Well, he basically invents a new religion. Although it's not totally new because it's sort of this twisted version of Judaism. In other words, what we see is that Rehoboam was smart enough to know that if he wanted the people to fall for it, if he wanted them to buy into it, he had to use just enough familiarity and religious language to fool them. And so what does he do? Well, he picks two important cities, both with religious history and background. He picks Dan in the far north and Bethel in the south, right across the border to Judah. And so again, one of his points there is to make worship uh, convenient for the people and, and to keep them from going down into Jerusalem and to the temple. We also see here that he makes two golden calves for them to worship. And so again, this should ring some bells for us in terms of that Exodus story. I mean, where else have we seen a golden calf? Where else have we seen someone say, behold your gods who brought you out of Egypt, right? Like the similarity here is crazy. Jeroboam has gone from being Moses, who leads the people out of slavery and tyranny, to now he has become like Aaron and has led the people into idolatry and false worship. I mean, when we look at this, what we see, we see false gods and images, which both break the first two commandments and the Ten Commandments. We see false places of worship in Dan and in Bethel. He even builds false temples and appoints false priests who are not Levites. Not only that, he makes up this false festival to imitate and to replace Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, this is in every respect an invented man-made religion that came about through fear and for a desire for convenience. 
Uh, the Hebrew verb to, to make or to do is used eight times in just three verses, all of which are meant to highlight the fact that this is a man-made religion. It sounds familiar. It, it, it feels somewhat normal. It, it certainly is convenient, but at the end of the day, it is idolatry and false worship. And so with that, how, how does God respond to this? Well, that brings us to our next part in our outline, and that is the tale of two prophets. Look at uh, chapter 13, verse 1. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar was also torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Okay, so in response to Jeroboam's disobedience and idolatry, God sends a prophet from the south, from Judah even, and he goes and he confronts Jeroboam right as he's about to make an offering on this bogus altar. And the prophet even tells him that one day God is going to raise up a son from the house of David named Josiah, and he will burn the bones of the false prophets, which does in fact happen in 2 Kings chapter 23. But as a sign or a proof that this will happen and will take place, the prophet says that, that the altar here even now will be torn down and the ashes poured out. And so Jeroboam, after hearing this, he, he, he points his hand at the prophet to, to say, seize him. And as he does, his hand and his arm become deformed and he's unable to draw it back to his own body. And look, I got to be honest, I have no idea what it means when it says his hand dried up. Like, I don't even know what that would look like, but, it, but I do know that it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound like something you want to have happen to your hands. We see next that the sign is, in fact, fulfilled. The altar falls down. And then in verse six, we get this amazing scene where Jeroboam actually stops and he begs the prophet to pray to Yahweh on his behalf that his hand might be healed and restored. And then amazingly, the prophet does it. He, he prays for the man. And then even more amazing, if that's a, a, the way you say it, God actually heals and restores Jeroboam's hand. So even though Jeroboam has forsaken the Lord, even though he's committed blatant idolatry, God still shows him mercy and grace in this moment by healing him. And yet, unfortunately, that's not enough to cause him to repent and to turn back to God, as we'll see in just a minute. Now, Jeroboam, he does because of this miracle. He tries to show some hospitality to this prophet. He invites him back to his place for a meal. But the prophet responds by telling him that Yahweh had very specifically told him to not eat or drink anything and to not return to Judah the same way. 
And so we see him tell Jeroboam, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I, I can't go with you. And so instead he turns to head back home. And so let's pick the story back up in verse 11. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his son, saddle the, don the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Okay, so we see here an old prophet from Bethel gets wind of, of what all has taken place uh, with Jeroboam and with this prophet from Judah. And so he chases this guy down and he begs him to come home with him to eat dinner. And the prophet from Judah is like, look, I, I can't. And he tells him the exact thing that he told Jeroboam. But in response to that, the old prophet lies to him and says, well, you know, actually, I, I too am a prophet. And an angel appeared to me and told me that, that I'm supposed to take you home and feed you. And so very foolishly, the prophet from Judah believes him and goes home with him. Verse 20. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Okay, so we see here that tragically this guy was tricked. He was deceived. But even still, that doesn't give him a valid excuse for not obeying the word of the Lord. I mean, Yahweh had very clearly given him specific instructions. This prophet knew what was expected of him and what he was supposed to do. Yes, this, this old prophet from Bethel claimed to have heard a new word from the Lord. But even still, the man of Judah did not test it. He didn't ask for a sign. He could have waited until Yahweh confirmed it in some other way, but he does none of that. Instead, he just blindly receives this guy's prophecy as truth. I mean, it's a little bit like this crazy story that I came across in Dale Ralph Davis's commentary when he talks about this baseball game in 1915 between St. Louis and Brooklyn. Now, apparently St. Louis's manager was coaching from third base and it was the seventh inning. There were two outs and the game was tied and St. Louis had a man on third base. 
And yet there was this poor 23-year-old rookie pitching for Brooklyn on the mound. And so right before he throws the ball again, the, the coach from third base yells at him and says, hey, bub, let me see that ball. And so without uh, thinking about it or without questioning it, the pitcher tossed the ball towards the coach. And as the ball comes, the coach steps out of the way and the ball hits the ground and ticks off rolling and the guy from third runs home and scores what turned out to be the winning run. And so yes, the poor pitcher was tricked by someone older. And yes, this poor prophet was tricked as well. But no, that doesn't mean that they are off the hook or that there still aren't consequences for their actions. Now losing a baseball game is a very different consequence from getting mauled by a lion, but you get the point. In fact, speaking of that, one of the things that you see throughout the Bible is that the prophets are held to a higher standard than others and that God does not take their disobedience lightly. Often they are punished quickly and typically it ends in death for them. And most likely the reason for that, like you think, why, why would God do that? That's so harsh. Well, the reason is because they have the responsibility to speak on God's behalf. And people are expected to listen and to heed their words. And so if they are a lying prophet or if they're a disobedient prophet, there needs to be punishment. They're held to a greater standard. Their integrity has to be of the highest order. And if not, God will punish them. And unfortunately, as we just read, that's exactly what happens here. This guy leaves, he begins to head home and out of nowhere, a lion comes and attacks him and kills him. And then weirdly just sits there, stands there alongside of the donkey like, you know, some sort of tamed house cat, which obviously that, that's an important detail because what that shows us is that this was from God. This wasn't just some random tragic accident that happened. No, this was divine judgment. You see, lions don't just kill for no reason. And they, they certainly, I don't think, would pass up an opportunity to eat a donkey. Now, if that wasn't weird enough, what happens next is that the old prophet finds out what happens and he goes and he gets this guy, this dead prophet from Judah, and he buries him in his own tomb and like mourns for him. He even asks his sons to bury him next to this guy when he dies, which is kind of weird. Although most uh, commentators think that he had selfish reasons in mind for asking that, which we don't really have time to get into. But either way, if we're just being honest, this is a weird story, right? I mean, there are so many questions that you and I probably have that are simply not answered in the text. And the reason for that is because the author's point isn't to help us understand or to answer questions around a strange story. But instead, the author wants us, uh, what he's trying to do is he's trying to warn us about the dangers of disobedience to the word of God. In fact, that's why the chapter ends by going back to King Jeroboam. And in verse 33, we read this. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priest for the high places, again, from among all the people. Any who would be ordained to be priest of the high places, any who would, he ordained to be priest of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth." I mean, as we look at this chapter, what we see is that Jeroboam got a message from God. He got a sign from God. He even got a miraculous healing from God. We, we also see uh, here that he seems to have known about these events that took place with the prophet uh, of Judah and, and what happened for his disobedience. And yet, how does he respond to all of this uh, grace that has been shown to him? All of these warning signs. 
But what does it say? It says, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil ways. You see, like I said earlier, Jeroboam has gone from being a Moses-like figure to an Aaron-like figure. And now we are seeing him become, uh, with the hardening of his heart, he's becoming like a Pharaoh-type figure. He's refusing to listen to the word of God. He's, he's refusing to let these signs and miracles convince him to change uh, his ways. And so because of this, like Pharaoh, he is about to have a rude awakening with one of his sons. And so let's go to that third point in our outline, and that is a tale of a blind prophet who can see. Chapter 14. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah, not to be confused with Abijah, the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and she went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her. When she came in, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in the door, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. So again, Jeroboam's son gets sick. And in his desperation, he has his wife disguise herself and he sends her to the very prophet who in chapter 11 prophesied his rise to the, king, uh, to the kingship. For some reason, he thinks that, that maybe because he's been living a disobedient life, that if his wife disguises herself, that somehow this will make a difference in, in terms of his son. But unfortunately for him, what Jeroboam doesn't realize is that blind prophets are still prophets. And therefore, God speaks to them whether they can physically see or not. And so Jeroboam's wife shows up. God speaks to Ahijah and he tells him what's going on and what he should do. Now, again, we're, we're a little bit running out of time here, and so we're not going to read the rest of the chapter. But, but basically, this unbearable news that he talks about is that not only is this sick son going to die, but actually God is going to judge Jeroboam's entire family. That because of his disobedience, instead of having a dynasty of kings run through his family line, instead, every single male is going to be killed and the kingdom is going to be given to another family. And not only that, God also tells them here that the people are going to be exiled out of the land because of the sin that Jeroboam has led them into, namely idolatry. After all of this, in chapter 14, we're told that Jeroboam died. And then and in verse 21, the story switches back to King Rehoboam, the king of Judah, who we haven't talked about in a while, but, but really things haven't gotten any better for him. He also has fallen into idolatry and pagan worship. And so because of that, there's one last twist in this upside down Exodus uh, story. Because in verse 25, we're told that the king of Egypt, a guy by the name of Shishak, which is kind of a cool name, reminds me of like Shake Shack, um, 
He comes and he raids the temple of, of God, the, the temple in Jerusalem, and he takes all of the gold that Solomon and David had worked so hard to collect. And again, if you remember that Exodus story, if you remember what happened when the people left, they plundered the Egyptians and took all their gold on their way out. And now here we have the Egyptians plundering the Israelites. And so with that, what are we to make of all of this? I mean, what a couple crazy and even sad stories. Well, again, there's probably a dozen different lessons or applications that we could take away from this. But the one thing that struck me this week and the one thing that I wanted to highlight because we've not talked about it much before is this, that I think you and I, one lesson we see here is that you and I need to be careful and we need to understand both the temptation and also the danger of false teaching and false worship. You see, as we talked about earlier, because of fear, which is, man, fear, fear will drive you to make all kinds of bad decisions, right? But because of fear, and because of also a desire for convenience, Jeroboam created a false religion. Now again, as I pointed out when we talked about that, he mixed in a lot of very familiar religious language and even familiar rituals. And so because of that, the people might've been fooled. They might've thought, wait a second, we're, we're still worshiping Yahweh, when in reality they were not. You see, unfortunately, you can uh, use the word of God. You can even quote parts of the Bible. Uh, you, you can uh, get together with people and call it church. And even still with all of that, you could be found worshiping a false God. I mean, really at the end of the day, what Jeroboam did is what we call syncretism. And what I mean by that is that he took some of Judaism and he took some of pagan Canaanite religion and then he threw in a few things that he made up on his own and bada beam, bada boom, you got a new religion. And because we ourselves, because we live in a, a very pluralistic society with lots of different beliefs and religions and values, and not only because of that, but also because of the fact that we're Americans and we're so prone to be individualistic, the danger of our beliefs becoming somewhat syncretized or false is pretty great. You see, whether it's Christians embracing other faith practices or rituals or beliefs, or, or whether it's, it's Christians adopting some new age or secular philosophies, or whether it's just people simply making up what they think is true about God and about reality. Again, either way, we live in a day and in an age where this is a real threat to our faith. I mean, how many people, including again, some believers, uh, treat their beliefs like a buffet line where they can just sort of pick and choose and mix and match what they think is true about God. And yet ironically, when people do this, they end up believing in a God who just so happens to agree with everything that they think is true. And yet, as Tim Keller has pointed out, if your God never disagrees with you, you may be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. <laughs> right? Like, that, how true is that? If, like, if you don't read something in here that slightly bothers you, and, 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 like, and yet you say, I'm going to submit myself to it, you, you, you've probably made up your own God. I mean, again, how common is it in our society? How many times have you heard someone say, well, you know, I could never believe in a God who does this or that, or, or who tells me I must believe this, or who's against this or that lifestyle. And really, when you think about it, it shouldn't surprise us that this is such a temptation. 
And that particularly, it, it, I feel like the temptation for it has only grown. In fact, when we read the New Testament, we see over and over again, the various authors warn us of this exact danger. Jesus talks about this. Both the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter talk about it in their letters. Paul mentions it a lot. And in fact, in some of the last words that he wrote before he died in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he said this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's before YouTube, right? Like how crazy is that? And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, speaking of YouTube, I know in the past, I, I, I've told you that I, I kind of can't stand these like YouTubers or these bloggers who are basically a bunch of self-righteous, self-appointed heresy hunters. And the main reason they bother me is because often they're calling out things that are not heresy, but instead they're calling out debatable matters between Christians. But even with that critique, I do very much believe that false doctrine and false teaching and specifically this danger to syncretize or mix Christianity with other faiths or other philosophies is a real danger that you and I need to be careful of. I mean, it's just true. Not everyone who calls himself Christian, not everyone who teaches from the Bible does so accurately. And so because of that, I think some of the best ways that you and I can protect ourselves from this is to number one, commit ourselves to the scriptures, to know them inside and out, and not just know them, but to know how to interpret them properly. I mean, people can twist the scriptures to say a lot of things that they're not saying. And so we need to know how to interpret uh, accurately, correctly. And then the second thing I think that you and I can do is we can be committed to a solid community of believers who we can talk about these things with and who, who can uh, speak into each other's lives and, and call out when we see each other drifting and going down a path where it's like, you know, hey, did you just say the word karma? Because, you know, karma is not a biblical concept, right? But, it, but it's so easy for us to fall in to these traps. And so community helps guard us and helps bring the added or the needed correction in our lives. Because look, the reality is, is that all of us have blind spots. All of us, as the hymn says, are prone to wander, to drift. None of us are perfect. There was only one perfect man and his name is Jesus. And you and I, we need his grace and we need his truth in order to not get off track. And I know that by and large, like, like you know, I was wrestling with this this week. I'm like, man, it's going to be really hard to teach through this book because it's, it's so depressing. And it, it's, if you remember in that first week, I said, what is the point of this book? It's to answer the question, how did God's people, the apple of God's eye, end up in exile? Well, they ended up in exile because of unfaithfulness, disobedience, and idolatry. And so the book of Kings is basically like exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, exhibit D. And it is depressing, but... I, I just want you and I to understand this. Our story does not have to end the way that their story ended. You and I can be faithful. We can be true to the word of God. We can live lives that are pleasing to him. By the power of the Holy Spirit and by submitting ourselves to the word of God, we can remain steadfast and faithful, even in the midst of a very difficult culture. And, and again, with all of the pluralism, that exist around us. You and I can be faithful to the word of God and to, to his commands. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. 
Father, we, we tell you we love your word. It's, there are some weird, strange things in it, though. But we thank you that none of it is without purpose. And we thank you, Lord, that you are able to instruct our minds into all truth. And Father, I just pray for myself and I pray for our friends, Lord, that you would guard our hearts. God, we do live in a day and age where everyone is an expert about, you know, everything. And, and, and we're, we're tempted by all kinds of various beliefs and, and, and rituals and traditions that just simply are not from you. And so, God, would you guard our hearts? Would you give us discerning minds? Would you give this church, this body, people with gifts of discernment to help keep us on track to guard our hearts? It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.
so much for being here with us this morning. Um, I got a couple quick things for you. One, um, I think we're on like day 18 of, of the things going on in Ukraine with the war in Ukraine. And so uh, we just felt like we wanted to keep praying for that. And so after the service here, if you, uh, if you feel burdened for that and would like to pray for that, we're going to meet over here by the baptismal and, and just have a, a time of prayer for specifically for Ukraine. And then also uh, along with that, um, our, our children's ministry cross crew a couple weeks ago, we're just, again, the, even these kids are burdened with all that's happening uh, in our world. And again, specifically with Ukraine. And so they just wanted to find a way to help. And so they decided to do a bake sale and the proceeds of the money are going to go support an orphanage called Jeremiah's Hope that OWR uh, helps run in, in Ukraine, which, needs, which obviously needs help right now. And so uh, hopefully you got your sweet tooth game on. Uh, there's a lot of good looking stuff out there. So be sure to stop by there. And then finally, um, again, there's a lot going on, but I just wanted to invite anyone up here for prayer. You can obviously come up for prayer for anything, anything you have going on in your life. There'll be some pastors and members of our prayer team up here. But this morning I was just, you know, thinking about, I felt like the Lord was impressing on, on me this idea uh, of God wanting to heal us physically. You know, the thing that was amazing about our story today is that God healed Jeroboam's hand. He's this, this, this godless pagan man who's walking away from God and God still shows him mercy when uh, he calls out to him, when he asked the prophet to pray for him. And so again, I don't know if you have something going on physically, uh, specifically, I was even thinking about people and maybe I'm thinking about it because I myself am struggling. Um, if you have any lo uh, long haul or long-term effects from COVID that are still lingering and you would like prayer for, please come down and let us pray for you. Right? Like we believe in a God, a, a miracle working God, a God who heals, who longs to pour out his blessing and his favor on us. And so please come down, ask for prayer. Uh, we'll be down here. Uh, let's close now with a final blessing. Second Peter chapter three says this. Now may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and at the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.